Well, good morning, church family. It is an honor for me to get to be with you. Chris Weeks called me down from orbit last week so I could be here and open God's word with you. So this morning we're going to be considering in Deuteronomy chapter 6 why bad things happen. And if you know the history of the Old Testament, you know that is largely a dark and disappointing history of hopes that were unfulfilled, of tragedies, and of loss. And this morning, we are going to be getting into Deuteronomy chapter 6, which holds this ancient, long-lost key with the answers to why so many things in the Old Testament went wrong. So go ahead and open in your Bibles, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles at the back... I'll be reading from the NIV, and that's going to be page number 258 on those Bibles in the back. And if you don't have one, please go ahead and grab one so you can follow along with us. Go ahead and keep your finger there, and let's begin with asking the Lord to help us in our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together on this beautiful morning. Lord, I thank you that we can sing these praises and these truths and commit them to our hearts and our minds and our memories. Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus this morning. I pray that you would help us to see and understand your word well. I pray that your spirit would work in and through me and in the lives of all of us who are here, that we would live differently because of the time we have spent together in your word this morning. We ask that what we would do would magnify Jesus' name. In his name, amen. Okay, so hopefully you're at Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'm going to try to set the scene for you a little bit, the scene of Deuteronomy, and specifically chapter 6 here as well. So imagine with me that you are an Israelite. Your parents had been slaves in Egypt when Moses had come and delivered through the ten signs and wonders that God had done. And You and your closest siblings were born in the wilderness as your parents and their generation wandered for 40 years. Your journey has come to an end, however. And on this particular day, you're walking up as you crest this hill. You look down before you and you see these sweeping plains. These are the plains of Moab. And there beyond the plain is the Jordan River flowing. And as you look even further than the river, you see in the distance the most luscious, green, naturally irrigated mountains and hills and this land that is just overflowing. As you continue to walk down, all of your family and relatives are with you. And you look before you and you see in sort of this half moon shape, thousands of other Israelites are there, gathered together. They're taking their seats and preparing to listen. And there, in the very middle of all of them, is the aged man, the prophet that the Lord spoke to face to face, Moses. And Moses, imagine he raises his hand, and all of a sudden silence just sweeps through the plain. And as he, as he begins to speak, you're caught off guard because this old aged man who has walked with God for many years of difficulty and trial. You expect him to have a voice of frailty. But instead, what you hear is you hear a voice of powerful conviction and urgency. 
because Moses knew that because of his disobedience, he was not going to get to cross the Jordan River and enter the land that God had promised to your ancestors. He was going to get to go to a high mountain and look and see it, but never cross it. And this book of Deuteronomy, this contains sort of his farewell and his final message. You can almost think of the last conversation you might have with a loved one who's telling you these final things they want you to remember and cherish these truths. And that is where we pick up here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So listen to these words that Moses spoke with urgency and conviction to the children of Israel beginning in verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you and your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down, When you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And then Moses is going to continue on in the rest of the chapter to tell the Israelites and implore them, when you enter into this land, you're going to harvest crops that you didn't plant. You're going to drink from wells that you never had to dig. You are going to live in cities that you never had to build. And as you are enjoying the abundance of God's goodness and blessing in this land, be careful. Don't forget the Lord your God. Like the generation before you had done. Don't test the Lord your God as they did. Remember who he is and what he has done. This chapter is an incredible chapter and I feel like We easily could be here for four weeks and not plumb all the depths of it. But we are going to focus just specifically on these first nine verses that I read. And I want to highlight a couple of things for you this morning. The first one is the name of the Lord our God. If you're anything like me and you hear or read the word Lord, I think it's easy for us to feel a sense of distance. Lord conveys this idea of majesty, but also sometimes otherness. And that could not be further from what the Israelites would hear when they read or heard Moses speaking about the Lord. The Lord is God's personal name. 
It's his covenant name that he revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when he said, I am who I am. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. When we hear that the Lord is one, that we who have the entirety of the Bible, we hear some Trinitarian echoes there, right? That we believe in one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think that's definitely there, but there's a second part of this. And if you look in your Bible, you probably have a translation note at the bottom. The short story of that is this verse is incredibly difficult to translate, and it can be translated a number of different ways. And one of the ways it can be translated is that the Lord is our God and the Lord is alone. And I think a secondary idea of the Lord being one is that he is alone in the sense that he is without rivals. Because his plan and his purpose for the children of Israel was that they were going to go into the middle of this area where all the surrounding nations around them did not worship the Lord, their God, but worshiped other so-called gods. They spent incredible amounts of time and energy offering sacrifices to them, trying to do things that would appease them, even at times sacrificing their very own children to try to get the favor of these so-called gods. But God's plan for the Israelites was that they would be different, that they would be a light in a dark place, and that the surrounding nations would look at how God is present with his people and how he is abundantly blessing them, and they would say, there is something different happening over there. I'm going to go to the light and find out. That after being unable to defeat the Israelites and seeing the abundance of their crops and their harvest, the healthiness of their herds and all of these things, that they would realize there is something different about the God who is in Israel. An additional part of this is that Moses conveys throughout this chapter in so many places God's perfect track record of faithfulness. You can hear it in the end of verse 3 when he says that they're going to enter a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. This is referring back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham who had no children until he was very old by a miracle of the Lord, had his son Isaac. And then Isaac had Jacob, and then Jacob had the 12 sons of the 12 tribes of Israel named after. So for generations, the Israelites were passing on the hope of this promise. And this generation of Israelites is going to see it fulfilled because God is faithful to his promises. That is the Lord, our God, the God of the Israelites and the God that we follow as well. There's a second part that Moses wants us to focus on here, and that's verse 5. How do we respond to who God is and his perfect track record of faithfulness? We are to respond by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is a very familiar verse, but you might not have realized this verse was from Deuteronomy chapter 6. We see it a number of times referenced in the New Testament as well. And we can get really detailed into trying to figure out what are the differences and distinctions between heart and soul and strength. But the idea is actually a very simple one. It's that God made you. You. He made you 
uniquely who you are. Put you in the family he put you in. He gave you the gifts and abilities that you have and dare we say for some of us some of the oddities maybe that we have as well. But the point here is that with everything that you are, with the totality of who God has made you to be, all of it is to be brought into submission and love for God. Every gift he's given you, every ability that you have, every ounce of strength that you have is to be put to the plow in seeking to love the Lord who has faithfully delivered us just as he did the Israelites. Then Moses tells the Israelites how they are to apply these truths in verses 7 to 9. He says, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Because it's not enough just to know about God. It's not enough just to know what he's done. But the Israelites, just as we do today, have this incredible burden and responsibility to pass these truths on to future generations. It starts with children. I don't think if you don't have children that you are alleviated from any responsibility in this verse. It is our duty to pass on to those around us the truth of who God is and what he's done. Then he tells them in the second half of verse 7, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. There's a fancy word for these kinds of phrases. They're called merisms. And a merism is basically the idea of A to Z and everything in between. So when you sit and when you're in transit or traveling and everything in between, be talking about who God is and what he's done. When you lie down and when you get up and everything else that you do in between, talk about these things. Then he says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. You can actually see in this picture right here, this Jewish woman has something, a cord wound around her forearm. And she has, I don't know if you can see it very well, but a little black box by her dark hair there. And in that box is a tiny rolled up scroll with these words from Deuteronomy 6 and a couple other passages in them. This is a very literal application of these verses, and these little boxes are called phylacteries, if you hear them. Jesus talked about them in the New Testament. But this is a very literal interpretation of this. Some of you might have a plaque in your house that has some scripture on it to remind you of it. The idea is that these things are like our winter jacket we don't go outside without, or our shoes that we don't go in the winter without. Then he says, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Every time that you crossed the threshold of the door to your house, his goal was that you would think, God gave this to me, to use, to steward, to use for God's purposes. And that every time you walked through the gates of the city that you and your descendants didn't build, but that God gave you, that you would remember who God is, and what he's done. Now, as I already alluded to, if you know the history of the Old Testament, you know that it is primarily a history of tragedy. Wars after wars after wars. 
generations of sons and fathers who went and fought battles. Israel's history is one of diminishing importance as the nations around them became stronger and stronger and they became weaker and weaker. The temple that Solomon built that was adorned in gold and had gold shields, soon they became silver and then bronze. As the gold of the temple was stripped to try to pay other countries to be their allies and protect them. Israel lost battles, they lost their land, they had famine like crazy and thousands of them died because they lost and forgot the Word of God. For generations, they lost it. And that's exactly where King Josiah picks up in 2 Kings 22 and 23. Because they were had a little building project of their own. The temple was in shambles, and they knew that wasn't what it was supposed to be. And so they had kind of a running collection trying to get some money to re-beautify the temple. Hilkiah the high priest was in the temple, and he found probably in a clay pot a scroll. He pulled it out, and he read it. And what he found was probably the first five books of the Bible, including the book of Deuteronomy. He read it, and then they ran to King Josiah, and they read it in his presence. And when King Josiah heard what was happening, all of a sudden, all of the tragedy and the loss and the heartache that had been plaguing Israel for centuries came into clear focus. He tore his robes in grief and in anguish. Then he inquired of a prophet, what they should do. Then he went on a scorched earth campaign. They pulled out all of the idols that were in the very temple where God's presence had been, and they burned them. They pulled out the shrine prostitutes who had been in God's temple. They went to all these high places all over Israel, and they tore down the altars and the idols that had been built up, and they burned them, and they ground them and spread them over graves. Josiah's repentance was so sincere that it stayed the hand of discipline and judgment of God for the rest of Josiah's lifetime. The answer to why all of these terrible tragedies had occurred was plainly apparent to Josiah. Listen to this verse that will sound very familiar in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25. It says, neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all of the law of Moses. They found these ancient truths that they had lost and forgotten. Now, as we read Deuteronomy, as we read about the kings of Israel, we might feel a sense of disconnection. And the circumstances are a little bit different than ours are today. However, I think there are a number of things that still ring true for us as well. In tragedy, loss, none of those are things that we are unfamiliar with. And while I would love to spend a lot more time talking about 
why bad things happen. Pastor Chris Paoni invited me to preach till 1 o'clock, and then we could just go straight to the baptism, but we're not going to do that. The reason bad things happen are because from Adam's time until today, we have been wanting to displace God in our lives. No, most of these things are things we'd never say, but we kind of want, want to be the one in control. We kind of want to be the one who has our way or gets to have our priorities the way we would like to have them. And the reality of sin is that it is real, it is present, and its consequences are insatiable and devastating. Sin is never satisfied. As I prayed through this passage and prepared this message, I think of you guys. Your faces come to my mind. And one of the burdens that I have in looking at Deuteronomy 6 is that as I think about some of the people in this room, I think there are some in here who we have bad things happening in our lives because we do not know God. Like, we might know some things about God, and again, this is one of the things we would never say, but as a pastor, I am convinced that this is true of some of us here now. We run around with this idea of what God is like. And as we read about all the rules and commands and decrees and stipulations he has, we think, man, he is heavy-handed. He just loves to see when I step a toe out of line. He's probably the guy who reads the terms and conditions for fun. But nothing could be further from the truth. And if we think of God in a way that is contrary to how he actually is, we are really defaming God and slandering him and his character. And it has devastating consequences for our lives because the way that we then live reflects how we think God is. There are some of you who think God is absolutely against you or that he's waiting with eager expectation for you to mess up. And I promise you that is not the case. Secondly, I believe that one of the reasons bad things happen to some of us is because there are some of us who don't really believe God's word. We don't really believe it has importance for us today. When we talk about God's word being lost, there's been times in my life where it has all but been lost. And other things so quickly displace the role of God's word in my own life. And the third and final thing is that while God has no rivals, it doesn't mean we don't try to set up rivals to God in our lives. And so often these are good things. Those are the trickiest ones. It might be our favorite hobbies. It might be what our children want most or are most passionate about. It might be the things we want to be known for or seen or recognized as being excellent at or the possessions we wish we had or the influence we wish we had. But anything that we put in God's place, we are setting up as a rival. And we are on a dangerous path because God has no rivals and he decimates anything that claims to be one. 
These are just a few things, a few reasons for why some of us have heartache and loss and consequences for sin in our lives. And these are the same problems the Israelites had in the Old Testament. But there is good news. God has a solution to sin and to death. His solution and his response was that he sent us his son. The laws and decrees that Moses gave the Israelites that they were never able to keep and that we aren't able to keep, Jesus came and he kept all of those perfectly. Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan. Satan tried to get him to bow down and serve him, telling him, I'll give you all of these kingdoms of the earth that are under my control. And Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6.13, saying, it's written, serve the Lord only. Then Satan took him to a high place and said, throw yourself down from here. In the Psalms it says, he will command his angels concerning you and you will not strike your foot upon a rock. And Jesus quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 18, which says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Later in Jesus' life, the Pharisees and the religious leaders came to him and they tried to trap him. And they asked him, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6, 5, that it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the good news of this is that Jesus kept the law of God perfectly for us. And so if we don't know God, or if you struggle to know what God is like, Jesus told his disciples, if you want to know what the Father's like, look at me. Because I am in my Father, and my Father is in me. We are one. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 6, that he alone was the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you trust in Jesus, he has perfectly kept the laws that Moses talked about for you. And then if you have believed in him, you are in Christ, which means that the beauty and blessings and goodness of God that Jesus has earned overflow to you. Moses points out the goodness of God in Deuteronomy chapter 6 all over the place. He says in verse 2 that it may go well with you, that you will have long life. He talks about the overflowing goodness of God. And this is what is so amazing about God. Yes, the Bible tells us how we should live. It tells us things we should and shouldn't do. But God didn't make rules so that your life would be miserable. God gave you his instruction in his word so that your life, not just in eternity, but right now, would be the best that it can possibly be. Because he's that good. He is that kind and generous. And somehow, I don't understand how, but being last is better than being first. And somehow serving is better than being served. Because it is God's world and he has made it so. And so when we follow after God, even in this lifetime, it doesn't mean it's not going to be easy. It doesn't mean that we don't have trials and temptations and difficulties. But as we encounter those things, we become more like Christ. And we lean on him and look more like him 
And that is the best thing for you. That is the best thing for your family members and for your children, is for you to look more like Jesus because of the work he is doing. And God's goal for us today is not different than it was for the Israelites. It's that we would be a light in the darkness. And that people would look at how we respond to the bad things that happen, and they say, there's something different. What is different? And that they would go and look, and that they would come out knowing who the Lord is. Seeing Jesus clearly, and believing and taking him at his word. Because God's goal in the Old Testament was to be the God of the Israelites and to have them be his people, that he could be with them where they are. And if you have followed Christ and you have trusted in him for your salvation, he is present with you through his spirit today. And that is only a small shadow and foretaste of the goodness and kindness of God that we will enjoy for all of eternity in God's unhindered presence as we will dwell with him and be with him where he is and enjoy his goodness and beauty. I hope and pray for you today that you know who the Lord is, that you see clearly who God is in the face of Christ. And if you don't, please don't leave today without talking to me or someone else.